Good morning, church. Corey will be back last, next week, so if I blow it, it's okay. Um, happy Memorial Day weekend to you. This is our weekend that we are reminded of the people who have sacrificed everything for us to have freedom. That we could come into a building like this and without being censored or prohibited, speak freely the word of God. And that there are families today as we grill and as we barbecue and enjoy our freedoms, but there are families who are missing those who have paid that sacrifice. Please pray for those people today and we thank them for their service and thank them for what they've done. Most of you know me. My name's David Ashworth. I'm one of the pastors here and some of you don't and that's okay. And, and Michelle and I in October of last year, we moved to Eagleville. And, uh, and so we have loved it. We were, we're city folk. We were city folk of Smyrna, city folk. That doesn't sound right at all, but we are less city folk than we were now in Eagleville. And uh, we've been looking for a location for our experience campus there. And we've not found it yet. Just to give you an idea, in the last year and a half, we've inquired about 14 different locations and trying to get all the different needs that we know that we're going to need there. It's not worked out yet. But, but we're confident. We, we know that God's going to do the right thing. But every Wednesday, we have this uh, Bible study. And it's been our family uh, for, for a time now. And we love these people. It's been awesome. And so uh, just getting in the community, it's been great. But living in the country, it creates new experiences. Like this. We have a groundhog. And his name is Gary. He doesn't know his name is Gary, but that's what we call him because we have no imagination. His name is Gary the Groundhog. I've been told I need to get rid of this groundhog, but we've named him, and you don't kill anything you name. It's just kind of how that works out, right? So my wife, Michelle, decides she wants to feed Gary, so she does some research, and she goes get, uh, she gets some cat food, and she puts a little bowl out by Gary's groundhog hole at the edge of the property, and, and the next day, she comes in pretty confident because uh, the food is gone. And she says, Gary has eaten. And I said, well, that's great, honey. That's great. And so the next day she does it again. Cat food is out and it's out by Gary's hole. And uh, she comes in confidently again and she has, Gary has eaten yet again. And then that afternoon coming back from the church, I turn into the driveway and there are two very fat and happy cats laying in our yard. <laughs> and I made the determination that Gary was a little bit more hungry than Michelle first thought. And, and so with that, um, that being said, what happens now is, is when I, I was sitting in my office at the house and now the cats, they come up to our, our front door and, and meow really loudly when it's time to put Gary's food out. Because I know these cats are good Samaritans and they're trying really hard to make sure a poor groundhog gets his meal. That being said, we have loved living in Eagleville, and uh, this, it's been an adventure for us. So with that, take your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 5. It's the last chapter in this letter of John. And while you're turning there, I, I've been on a journey lately. Um, I was challenged by Josh Brooker to, to kind of just dig into my faith. And uh, I went back and I looked at some of the, the readings and the works and the sermons uh, of people who came before us. And one of the many people I've been reading about was this fiery preacher. His name was Leonard Ravenhill. And he makes a statement that has stuck with me. And, and you can actually go on YouTube and you can find black and white videos of, of his sermons. And he says this to a congregation. 
He says, in tears, he says, I believe the greatest tragedy is a sick church in a dying world. And when people say stuff like this, I want to think about it, make sure that what they're saying is true. And And it didn't take me long to agree with his statements. Because all I had to do was look at, at, at Christian marriages, how, how we treat each other sometimes, our toleration of sin, the lack of discipleship in the church, the lack of people sharing their faith, people coming to church but not actually living out what they've learned. And we see it on, on a regular basis. And I've come to this conclusion in my life is that if we don't ever recognize our sickness as a church, we'll never treat its symptoms. And how does that impact us, right? What happens is we go home and it impacts the the father we are, impacts the husband we are. It impacts the the wife you are, the mother you are to your children. But then it gets more intense, right? Because God has called us to be a light to the world, to show the world a better way. But if we don't change, the world will only see our sickness, And here's the issue. People outside of Christianity are not dumb. They look at us and they say, how are Christians living any better than me? And so here's the thing. For the gospel to be received in modern society, it is first going to have to be seen. That's you and me making a choice to compromise nothing in our lives to live out this gospel that every believer is called to. Because it's in those moments when we compromise our faith. It's in those moments when something else in our life looks more, in, more important, when something else looks more satisfying to us than Jesus, that people began to question our Christianity. Because ultimately, why would anyone in the world ask about the gospel if it's never visible? If it's never visible, why would they ask? And if we are the sick church in a dying world, I believe we need healing. And in this final chapter of 1 John, I believe John offers us a remedy. So if you look at your Bibles, we're going to start with verse 1. Go to verse 5. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So it's interesting here, John, he repeats his gospel in a way. In in John chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of heaven, that he must be born again. And and, and in this letter, John is basically saying you must be born of God. There's this deeper understanding now and this focus shifts from this natural state of, of loving ourselves or just loving people who only love us to now loving the people that God loves and the people that God cares about. And and the love that's declared throughout this passage, every time you see the word love, it is a form of this Greek word, agape. Agape, many people, many Christians know what this means. It is a visible, it's a sacrificial love. 
Agape is this expression of God's love in our lives. And the fact that God is present in our lives, we now can love agape. We can love with this idea that I don't have to have anything in return. It is the love of God for people expressed through the people who love God. And God's presence has to be apparent for agape to happen. Because agape is loving others without receiving anything in return because receiving Christ is all we ever needed. And then from the outward of the overflow of our lives that God pours into us, that we can overflow to every person around us. And even if we receive nothing in return, Jesus is most satisfying. And we can love this way. See, what happens is when you become a Christian, the source of your love changes. The source of your love changes. It is no longer you loving someone. It is now Christ loving through you. That you set yourself aside so that God would be visible through your life. And it's so important. The context of by which you love is is paramount to people seeing Jesus through you. The source is so important. Paul gives us a picture of this in Galatians. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we get set aside so that God can flow through us and be shown through us to a world that needs to see. And every now and then what happens is, and it's usually a catastrophic event, that we get this clear picture of God's love in people's lives. Many of you may know this story. There's a man by the name of Dylan Roof. He was a white supremacist. He stepped into an African-American church in Charleston during a prayer service. And after Dylan Roof was arrested, what he admitted is is he was hoping that he would start a race war. So the man walks into this prayer service and he kills the senior pastor along with eight others. And here's the thing, the the, the family members, after Dylan was tried, convicted, and and at his sentencing, family member after family member came and glorified God. And it was amazing to me. And and I want to just give you two quotes from from these families. One, a a lady by the name of Nadine Collier. She was daughter of victim Ethel Lance. She says this. She says, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. And again, they kept coming. One more for you. This was a relative of Myra Thompson. Said this, I would just like him to know that. To say the same thing that was just said. I forgive him. And my family forgives him but we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your ways so no matter what happens to you, 
you'll be okay. And it happened again and again. And the love of these family members amazed me. I was reading the comments to, under the article of what happened. And, and there was three or four comments that went along the lines of this. I'm not a religious person, but I stand in awe of the love of this family. God's love was expressed through people who could have responded so differently. And God was glorified that day through their actions and through their words. And I was amazed. You see, when the source of our love changes, when the source of our love changes, it's natural human nature to respond one way to something like this. But it is God's love through people that gives a different response. It is so important for us to understand that when we set ourselves aside, God is now visible through us. They don't get a glimpse of our love anymore. They get a glimpse of Jesus and how much he loves people. And Jesus is now the one who directs how we love others, not us. It is human nature to love people who love us. But we learn to love people that God loves in the way that God loves them. That is much more of a difficult task to set yourself aside and let the love of God to shine through. So John, what he does is he calls us to this loving obedience in our lives. He's calling us now to this obedience. And it's God's love that removes the burden of obedience. And this is so important for Christianity right now because what happens is we think there's this standard to the Christian life and we go, man, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. And, and I'm like a law keeper trying to hold on to all of these standards and it gets more and more difficult and all it does is it makes me a legalist. But what the believer is called to do is something different where a believer sits back and says, God, I know this is not what you want for my life. I'm gonna give it to you. You can have it. This is something I, I, I did and, and, and this is not how you want me to live, God. You can, you can have this for my life. God, my anger, when I get so easily frustrated, God, I know this is not your will. You can have this. God, my temper. God, my lust. I know this is not what you want for me. I'm gonna lay it at your feet and I trust your will. One is trying to build up something we can't build. The other is surrendering to a God who can carry us further. Amen. And so in the midst of this, a believer yields his or her life so that God would move in it. And we get this wrong we try so hard and then we fail and we wonder what's wrong with the Christian life when God is saying, I want you to do, go about this the other way. Please understand the difference between a believer and a legalist. Ultimately, we do not find significance in our standards. We find significance in our surrender. That is where significance is found in the Christian life, not in how religious you make yourself but how you make much of how big God is in your life. And so we surrender our lives so that God will move through it. We yield our will so that his will is visible within us. And as Christians, we demonstrate his heart, his love, his desires for us and for others. This is surrender. Imagine the power of the Christian life for the believer who hits his knees or hits her knees 
and says, God, thank you for another day. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. God, wherever it is that you want me to go, I'll go. Just show me. If you show me, I, I, I will obey. I'll follow you. That is surrender. That is faith. And what John declares in this passage is, is that it's victory. It's victory. Next part, verse 6. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God's God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has a son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John, he may have written this because of a false teacher. We've been talking about, um, we've been talking about Gnosticism the last couple of weeks and the, and the false teaching in it, but this false teacher, his name is Serenthus. I, I, I guess the best way to explain this, and it's, it's kind of confusing in a sense, is that there is spirit Jesus and human Jesus and at baptism, spirit Jesus came on human Jesus. And before Jesus went to the cross, spirit Jesus left human Jesus. And, and that's kind of how that played out. I know it's confusing, right? Especially since Gnostics didn't believe Jesus was exactly human. They believed he was a phantom. And, and this, John is actually declaring the water and the blood now because he's declaring both baptism and the cross. That the same Jesus who was baptized was the same Jesus who went to the cross. And the main point of these verses, if it's confusing when you read it, is that God testifies about himself. Because what happens is in Jewish culture, there had to be two or more witnesses to testify to an event or to a stance in court. And so God is now testifying to himself through the water, through the blood, through the spirit of God, that there's enough witnesses for the testimony to be valid. So the Spirit works through Jesus. The Father confirms who Jesus is at baptism, and the Son actually dies on the cross. And so we can look at a man like Serenthus and not understand completely what he believed, but that's really not the issue. The question is, is what do we believe? What do we believe about Jesus? And, and, and the sick church only believes part of the testimony Today, what has happened is that Christianity has gotten so sparse that researchers, when they look at Christians, they had to create a separate category for believers who actually believe all of the Bible. They're called evangelical Christians. If you believe all of the Bible today, you are considered an evangelical Christian. But when you see the research, it says uh, 70 to 80% of America, depending upon the poll you look at, is Christian these days. It's not evangelical. For example, Christians today question the idea of whether or not hell is actually real. Christians question whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin. 
I don't know if I believe that. Some say they're not sure if Satan actually exists. Others say that because we're in a pluralistic society today, they're not actually sure if Jesus is the only way. And the last one shocked me. There was 25% of Christians in our country that are not sure if the resurrection actually happened. Man, this is not a Sorrentus problem. This is an us problem. Because here's the, here's the issue, right? When a person comes up to the word of God and says, I believe this. This is my authority. I trust it. I trust the word of God. And this is the authority for my life. That person is establishing authority. Now imagine what happens when a person comes up to the Bible and says, yeah, man, this is a great book. I don't know if hell's real. I don't actually know if Jesus is the only way. What happens? Who's the authority now? What have I done? This no longer becomes the authority in my life if I hold that posture. I'm actually transferring authority to me and say, I get the final say. It is a dangerous place to be as a Christian when you are your own authority. But for the believer to say, I trust in this. This is my life. This is, this is how I'm going to live. This is my authority. Whatever it says do, this word, this is what I will do. There's a different posture whether you give yourself the name of Christian or not. So John is declaring that God has confirmed all of the things on this screen right here. That God has confirmed it. His testimony is valid even in Jewish culture. So when it's said and done, more than a false teaching ever challenges a doctrine or belief, it actually challenges the integrity of God. And that's why John says they're calling God a liar. I think that's a dangerous place to be in our lives. Please understand something here. Christianity is not another religion for us to refute. Christianity is Christ. The reason we are called Christians because the word Christian means little Christ. Christianity is not about how good you are. It's about how good Christ is. It's, it has nothing to do with how good we are. Before Christianity is about what we do, it has everything to do with what Christ has done. And as we look at this, why John says it is eternal life and why the gospel leads to eternal life, he says that because the very definition of eternal life is to have Christ. So we turn to God. He is the means by which we live, he, which is a stark contrast to the world and how the world lives. We've got to understand this because if you've been a Christian for a while, there should be a momentum in your life where God is instructing you and calling you in a completely different direction than the direction the world would call you. Completely different. There is a, a, a polarization that happens between, between a worldview of, 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 of an unsaved person versus someone who follows Christ. They're completely polarizing. And what I want to do is I want to give you a, an example of three just three. There's so many, but I want to give you an example of three. The word versus the world. The world will teach self-discipline. The word teaches self-denial. The world will teach self-care. The word teaches the healing presence of God. The world teaches self-improvement. The word teaches surrender 
It teaches surrender. We must know the difference to live an authentic Christian life because these two positions are completely opposite of each other. And in an age of doubt where people who even call themselves Christians don't know what they believe, what John is inviting us here is what do you believe? What do you believe? Is this your authority or is it you? And you have to make the choice because a complete surrender to, to God is going to change your authority. Okay, last part, verses 14. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So as we live out the will of God, God gives us what we need to accomplish his will. What happens is, is people will teach in error that God is a genie in a bottle waiting to give us whatever it is we want so that if we can live up to a certain standard that, that God will give us what we want. But that's not actually how it's portrayed here. Our relationship with God has never been about our will being done. It's about us accomplishing his will. So, so we're gonna play a game real quick. We're gonna, we're gonna play a game called Blatantly Obvious. I'm going to be blatantly obvious with you for a second so we don't have to think really hard on this one. If I close my eyes and I pray and I ask God for a million dollars in an early retirement, whose will is that probably? It's probably mine. It's probably mine. Then what happens is people are taught that that's how you're supposed to pray and then they get mad at God when God doesn't give them early retirement. But again, staying, staying with this for just a second, I'm not supposed to use the word hate, so I'm not going to, but I loathe extremely Christian televangelist uh, messages. It, it, they drive me crazy because I grew up in it and, and I had to leave it to actually understand the true gospel. And, and with that, what I wanna do is I'm gonna give you a, uh, a quote from two different pastors. I'm not even gonna give you their names because it's not about a person, it's about the message. Again, we're playing whose will is it here? This one pastor on television, I went and looked it back up so I could get the exact wording. He said this. He said, some people come to me and say, well, I came here to get some peace, not money. And I tell them, you need money, otherwise you ain't gonna get no peace. Whose will is that? And here's the issue, right? I'm not here to attack the person. It's the simple fact that this message probably has nothing to do with the will of God. If I pray prayers asking God just for what I desire, that's my will be done. 
That's my will be done, not his will be done. One more on this one, one more. This pastor looked over a conference and he made this statement. He said, God said, it's time for us to tell the money you don't belong to the wicked, you belong to us, and I want you to get into the right plan. Money cometh to me now. And see, here's the thing. People who don't don the doors of churches, even people who call themselves Christians, that's their teaching. And then what we've also learned is that this is being exported out of our country to impoverished nations because it's, it's an easy message. But is it the truth? Is it the truth? So here's the thing. People ask, well, then how do I pray? What posture do I pray from? And this is just my opinion. I believe that the initial condition of answered prayer is the surrendered life. It's the surrendered life. It's the person who says, God, I want to do your will today. God, I need your help in, 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 in doing your will. I'm sick right now. I need healing, God. Whatever it is you have me, for me to do, I'll do it. God, you know the needs of the people around us as we're trying to live out your will. God, please supply what we need so that your will would be accomplished through us. That is a different posture than speaking to an empty billfold saying, money cometh to me now. It is a completely different posture where I set the will of God at the forefront of my life when I ask for things. And the only way that I know how to pray in accordance to his will is to live in accordance to his will. That my life is contributing to the will of God on the earth and that your life is contributing to the will of God on the earth. A life of surrender, I believe, teaches us how to pray at all. And then John tells us to pray for believers who are in sin. We're commissioned to pray for them as long as they're living. And look, sin does not have to lead to death. Repentance and faith in Jesus can change the course of the sinner. And I need you to hear me on this one because I've talked to some of you. And when Corey gets up here week after week and when he talks about the grace of God or, or Greg gets up here and if they're desperate, they get me. But with that being said, when we talk about the grace of God, what you imagine is, is that God can forgive everybody except you. And that's not true. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that includes you. You are not exempt from the grace of God. I don't care what you have done. So in the midst of this, God still loves you. He includes his offer to you in his grace. And then the believer in Christ is called to a life away from sin because what happens is grace changes a person's momentum. It changes a person's momentum. Do you know that the purpose of grace is not so that God will tolerate your sin? What we say in the South is it's better to ask forgiveness and permission, or for permission rather than, than God, I just got all that wrong. <laughs> it's better to ask forgiveness and permission. And so what we do is we go about our sins and we go, well, God will forgive us. God will forgive us. It's okay. As if the point of grace is so that God will tolerate your sin. That is not what grace is for. Grace is the great teacher in the Christian life. Titus, uh, Paul writes this, and he gives us this better picture of what grace does. He, he says this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Grace has a motive. There's instruction here that it's going to change our lives as we depend upon the grace of God. I want you to think about this word grace for a second. The whole totality of its meaning. Hear me all the way through the, the thought before you stone me to death. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. Why is the gospel bad news? Because when I look at my life, I fall short. I am full of sin. I am hopelessly lost. Grace makes that declaration. But then on the flip side of that, when we needed saving, God said, I will. And now grace is glorious because despite the depth of our sin, God says, I'll save you. The full implication of the word is both depravity and salvation. And the further we step away from sin, James says it this way, when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And as we go, God, I surrender this to you. I've actually allowed this into my life. No more. And we get one step closer to God as we get rid of all these things in the way in our sin. And then we realize more and more how much he loves us. And what happens is grace does this work and it calls us away from the world that we have allowed into our own lives. That we have something more to live for in this. And then John, in, in all of this, he says, the world is under the sway of the evil one. And I looked at this word sway. It's really interesting. The King James, it says it this way, is that the world lies in wickedness. And the original language of what John has said talks about this idea of the world being asleep under the sway of the evil one. But here's the issue, right? The church can sleep. The church can fall asleep in the midst of this if we're not careful. A sick church is a sleeping church. A sleeping church has lost itself to the ways of the world. There's other priorities in our lives. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, one reason the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. In other words, we're asleep. We're asleep. We desperately need to shed off this casual Christian life that is okay with our sin, that is okay with our will first. And yes, we're sinners, and yes, we're going to make mistakes, but the momentum of your life should be further and further away from sin. Grace should be doing a work in you. But I fear we have settled for sleeping. I'm so afraid that we have settled for being asleep. Years ago, this was back when The Matrix came out, that I saw a really cheesy youth skit. And you know it was when The Matrix, themed around The Matrix, because all the demons were wearing black leather and they had shades while they were sitting inside. And I was like, man, this is really cheesy. But the message was powerful. And so this, in, in the story of the skit, this young man and this young woman, they are sitting uh, in a restaurant and they're 
They're having casual conversation. And the young lady looks around and she puts her fork down and she, she looks at the man across from him. She says, Brandon, they're about to find me. We don't have much time, but I'm here for a reason. You need to listen. Brandon, you're asleep. You're not awake. You are asleep. And you've been sleeping for so long, so long that you don't even realize it. Brandon, I came here tonight because I need you to wake up. Wake up. And as she raises her voice, they call the authorities and they come for her and she's screaming, Brandon, this is your last chance. I need you to wake up as they pull her away and there's a scuffle and she's gone. And all of a sudden, after arguing with her all this time, he's sitting alone at a table and he notices a crack in the wall. And out of the crack, it's actually glowing. And he notices that for the first time that something's not right. So he pushes his table back and, and he grabs a chair and he beats it against the wall and the crack gets bigger and the light gets brighter and he hits it again, but the chair breaks and he backs up and he kicks one time at the wall. Second time at the wall, the authorities come in to grab him now and as they grab his arms, he kicks a third and final time. And then all of a sudden, silence. Utter and complete darkness. Brandon is lying down where he's been sleeping. And he's been sleeping for so long that this place is uttering completely dark and dusty. But then he's jolted awake and the kick that he started in one world finishes itself in another. And so Brandon, being jolted awake for the first time in a long time, kicks and he kicks off the lid of his own coffin. And light shines in for the first time. Outside, the, the woman that he was on the date with is standing there and she's smiling and, and welcoming, welcoming him to reality. And as he sits up out of his own coffin, she hands him a crowbar and he looks at it and he says, well, what's this for? She says, now we have to wake up everybody else. And the camera zooms out to thousands upon thousands of coffins with people asleep inside of them. And I sat wrecked. And I was trying to understand this, and there was, there was this French Jesuit priest. Guys, I have practiced a whole lot to say this guy's name. I mean a whole lot. Are you ready? His name is Pierre Terreau de Chardon. Well, I didn't want to get up here and say Pierre Tailhard de Chardon. But he makes this brilliant statement. He makes this brilliant statement. He says this. He says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And so what happens is, is we get this wrong. Monday hits, we get up and we get ready. We're barely awake. We get in our showers. We get in the car and we fight I-24 traffic to get to work. And there's stress and there's deadlines. There's stuff to do. And then we get home to take care of our kids or, or be with our spouse or hang out with friends or, 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 or you know, sit in front of the uh, game, a PlayStation for four hours or you know, whatever it is that we do. And then we go to church on Sunday. Which life, which context are we living in? You see, that's a different perspective from God, thank you for another day. 
God, who, who do you want me to speak to today? Who should I pray for today? My mom gave me this, this great habit of every time she sees an ambulance, she prays for the person at the end of it. And so when, she's, when she taught me that, when I'm ever driving on the interstate, I, I immediately will stop and pray for the person that they're going to. And now that life is perspe- perspective changes when I get to love my wife because God gives me that opportunity. My life changes when no matter what I'm facing, no matter, no matter what I've been through, that I know that God is with me. Sometimes God doesn't answer the prayers like, our prayers like we want him to. Jesus at Gethsemane says, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Most of us know that it didn't pass, but Jesus was satisfied with the will of God. And now it changes. Are, are we human beings have a, having a spiritual experience? Or are we spiritual beings having a human experience? And until we get this right, we will sleep. We will sleep. We will be the sick church in a dying world. So I I want to talk to you about John's remedy. And I'm going to ask you not to look at this in principle. I want you to look at this practically. The last couple of weeks or couple of months of your life, I want you, I'm not going to judge you today. That's not my job. I want you to judge yourself. First and foremost, do you live for God's will or yours? Do we want God to bless our plans or are we actually living for his? Is it your will be done or is it his will be done? If we can be honest, we can look at our lives and know the answer. We can know the answer. Secondly, in all of this, is God's grace leading you to righteousness? Is there a work being done in your life because of the grace of God? Is the grace of God taking you somewhere because you're allowing God to move you? Or do you look just like you did right before you were saved? Is the grace of God doing its work? Is it instructing you, as Titus says? And then finally, in the midst of all of this, When is the last time you surrendered to Jesus? When's the last time? Now, see, we moved around a lot. My denomination is Baptocostal of Christ a Tyrannist. And so, but we did it the same way in all these different churches. If you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and you had that one moment of surrender with God, that was good. But then you were done. I was never taught when I was younger that, that that one moment of surrender led to a lifetime of surrender and a, a continuous surrender of things in my life. I was taught for one moment, but Jesus is calling us to an entire life of surrender because ultimately the overarching question to all of these here is simply this. If I look at these questions, are we the sleeping church? Are we the sick church in a dying world? And I love you enough to tell you the truth and have you hate my guts and then rather than come up here and give you something happy. I want us, I want us to, to follow God with all of our hearts or I would have done something else with my life. Will you bow your heads? If today, 
if today is a moment of awakening for you, what I ask you to do to, to my right and to my left are going to be people who are, are going to be willing to pray for you. And if today is your day of awakening and you go, gosh, he's right. I've been asleep. And it's time for me to have this moment of awakening and to live out the real gospel in my life, to seek God's will and not my own. Please let someone pray for you. Or if you're with somebody that you trust, pray with them in your seat. And all around the room is communion. You'll see tables with lamps on them. That is the body and the blood of Jesus that, was, that made a way for you to be saved. For you to know him, to know God, to have fellowship with him. Please don't leave without taking communion today. And if you're new to Christianity and you have questions, you're just not sure about what this is yet, and you're trying to figure this out, and it's great to, to the right, my right and your left is Greg. He's one of the pastors here. He's a really good guy. He won't judge you. He just wants to help you. Come ask your questions. God, we love you. God, teach us what it means to surrender. Teach us what it means to know you to set your will above ours so that we would be used for your glory. Lord, we love you and we praise you in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Thank you guys so much.